0: To another edition of the-
1: Welcome to the Mad Max Minute and welcome to Season 3 where we'll be watching Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome one minute at a time. I'm Rick.
0: And I'm Julia.
1: And today we're talking about Minute 1, which begins with the Warner Brothers logo and it ends with the names of our principal actors on a black background. Hi! Yeah, welcome back for people that were listening before and welcome if you're fresh in the series. Thunderdome is an odd place to pop in if you haven't been with us before. But we're glad you're along for the ride.
0: Well, I'm not so sure that it's such an odd place to pop in. A lot of people in my situation, in their mid-30s, Thunderdome was often the one that we saw the most. It's the one that was on TV the most because it was rated PG... 13. 13, while the others were rated R, correct?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. There was a whole lot less work to edit it down for television.
0: Although, we'll
1: find out as we talk about this movie. There are a surprising amount of curse words, even if the people saying them aren't necessarily on screen at the time. (laughs) Watching the PG-13 cut of this movie, I was surprised... How many times those things popped up. But they're the kind of thing that would be easily edited for television.
0: I also think as far as Mel Gibson goes, he's really starting to hit his stride. Mm -hmm. By the time we get to 1983? Yep. Yeah, which we'll talk about down the road, the things that he's been working on. I think this is an entry point for a lot of people into the series.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. You've brought me around on the idea. The first thing we see in this minute is, of course, the Warner Brothers logo, because once George Miller and Byron Kennedy were done with Mad Max and they were shopping around for the sequel, they got hooked up with Village Roadshow, and Village Roadshow distributed in the United States with Warner Brothers, and when Road Warrior made essentially the money that it did, Warner Brothers was like, all right, we're holding on to this property, Road Warrior took in over $24 million worldwide on a $2 million budget.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah. When Miller decided to do a third movie in the series, Warner Brothers gave him a solid $10 million US to make Thunderdome. So that's a big reason why there's so much more stuff in this movie, because he had the budget to pay for it.
0: The first thing that came to mind when you said that was stars. Tina Turner.
1: Mm -hmm. I think Tina Turner's hiring had a lot to do with the fact that Warner Brothers wanted a big American name to bring in those American audiences. Fun fact about the funding of this movie is that it is technically the first Mad Max movie using funding from the U.S. Because as we remember from talking about Mad Max in 1979, that was all self-funded by George and Byron doing their Side jobs and raising $300,000. The money for Road Warrior obviously came from Village Road Show, which is Australian money. So this time around, so those Americans, they come in and they get their grubby hands on things.
0: <laughs> and also, this was not filmed in Australia, correct? No, oh, no it was. No no, 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 I'm sorry. I was thinking of Fury Road that was filmed in Africa. Africa. Sorry. Never mind.
1: <laughs> we'll say, we will get to Fury Road eventually. Give it time. Oh, I can't wait. There's an interesting thing about this Warner Brothers logo, though, because the last time we watched a Mad Max movie with Road Warrior, we came in on the Warner Brothers logo, and we got that logo version of As Time Goes By that they like to use. This time, that's not the case. We see the Warner Brothers logo, and we're starting to hear the more or less intro to a song. Then this song is going to continue to play through the opening credits. And uh, we'll get to the song specifically, because I have a lot of stuff written about it down below in my notes. But the next thing we see after the Warner Brothers logo is, of course, Kennedy Miller Presents.
0: Which is bittersweet. Mm -hmm. because Byron Kennedy did not get to work on this movie.
1: So I went around and I was looking for information about the making of Thunderdome because there just doesn't seem to be as much material surrounding Thunderdome as there was for Road Warrior, but I don't want to start complaining or anything like that. And I found an article from thisdistractedglobe.com. They have an article written back in 2007, actually. And this is an excerpt that I'm going to read from that article. They say... In 1979, Mad Max became the most profitable Australian film ever made, grossing $100 million worldwide on a meager $350,000 budget. While Mad Max 2, released in the States as The Road Warrior, was even more successful, director George Miller thought the story had nowhere to go. Over dinner, friend and screenwriter Terry Hayes mentioned a script of his, one about a tribe of lost kids... And Miller felt that that was a good premise for Mad Max 3. So Hayes and Miller wrote a script, and in June of 1983, Miller and Kennedy announced that they were making Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. As a co-director, Miller hired George Ogilvy, who had directed an hour of Kennedy Miller's miniseries The Dismissal in 1983. Miller focused primarily on choreographing the stunts while Ogilvy worked with the actors. And this is the sad part that I'm getting to here. That summer, July of 1983, Byron Kennedy died when a helicopter he was piloting crashed near Sydney. Miller considered cancelling the production but ultimately felt that his producing partner would have wanted them to press on.
0: So, in Kennedy's honor, the Australian Film Institute partnered up with Warner Brothers, Village Roadshow, and Steven Spielberg to present the Byron Kennedy Award. This is a yearly award given to Australian artists. It's a little difficult to categorize, because reading through the list of winners, they come from all sorts of places. For example, Roger Savage won in 1984, which was the first award for his work as a sound engineer. He was best known for Return of the Jedi and Moulin Rouge, which Moulin Rouge, he was nominated for an Academy Award. Nice. So he was the first winner. Another example, in 1999, it was given to Boz Lerman and Catherine Martin. And I'm, I'll just read the little excerpt on why it was given to them. For their process of total filmmaking, never conventional, they immerse the whole team from actor to editor in experimentation and pre-visualization. In this way, they evolve a comprehensive aesthetic which informs everything from the concepts to poster with flair. The results, always groundbreaking, speak for themselves." One of the other winners that stood out that I don't have her name in front of me that was, seemed kind of unique, someone won for groundbreaking work in VR. Hmm. So the award seems to thematically be for movie making, but it's not exactly pinned down what the award is for.
1: Okay. Kind of seems like a catch-all.
0: Yeah, it does. So for, you know, artistic endeavors in Australian cinema.
1: That's cool. Yeah. Really cool. So after the logo for Kennedy Miller Presents, we get Mel Gibson's name coming at us out of the inky black void that is these opening credits. Something interesting about Mel Gibson appearing in this film, it's... Not surprising that he came back for a third one. These movies were incredibly lucrative, and he already had a grasp on the character. But he had his agent, Ed Lamato, negotiate with Warner Brothers, and Mel Gibson got a $1 million payday for doing this movie, which at the time, and I guess for all time, was the first time that that had ever happened for an Australian actor.
0: It does not surprise me at all that George Miller and his work on the Mad Max series is doing new things and breaking records, doing things that have never been done before, including a star being paid that much money.
1: Mel Gibson was literally paid one-tenth of the budget for this movie, though.
0: Wow, when you think of it that way, mm-hmm. to us, one million dollars to be the star in a movie doesn't really sound like that much. But when you put it in context of 1983, Australia, and one tenth the budget of the entire movie, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm.
1: It certainly is. That article I mentioned before, where I got the one million dollar payday fact from, they talk about him showing up on the set. They say Gibson had starred in The Bounty, The River, and Mrs. Soffle within 12 months when he reported to the boiling set of Thunderdome in September 1984. Increasing his disgust, People magazine voted him sexiest man alive during this period. The star was depressed and drinking heavily throughout the film, and complained to a recorder that the movie was a piece of <laughs> A couple of years later, though, Gibson retracted his comment and apologized.
0: Yeah, that quote reminds me that Mel Gibson is not a great person. Right. We skip over that a lot while we're talking about these movies. Because we
1: like to focus on him in the movie as the character.
0: Yes, we are looking at the character and we talk sometimes about Mel Gibson the person, but we don't usually focus on the negative. Yeah. It's hard not to with quotes like that.
1: Right. After he did Road Warrior, there are actually four movies listed between that second movie and Beyond Thunderdome here. Obviously, I mentioned three of them before, The Bounty of the River and Mrs. Saville. but there's another one from 1982 called The Year of Living Dangerously that he was also in. So he's a busy guy.
0: Yes, I can imagine he was much sought after.
1: Mm-hmm. So Mill Gibson's name goes away. We move on to the next one, which of course is Tina Turner, which I will say, having watched the series up to this point, little surprised. For a first time viewer to see a name like Tina Turner pop up, I imagine.
0: It's definitely another turning point of the series Mm -hmm. that is certainly a product of other turning points. The budget, working with Warner Brothers, but it's a point on the path that takes us to Fury Road, which is full of money and stars. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't have been able to get to that point if we hadn't taken this specific journey (laughs) Each movie getting more money and getting better actors and bigger names. So whether or not you're a fan of this movie, and I know a lot of people, it's not their favorite. It is an important point on the path that takes us to Fury Road, which is one of the best movies ever.
1: Mm -hmm. Beyond Thunderdome was actually Tina Turner's third feature-length film. When we get to meet her in the movie, when she shows up, we'll go more into her filmography. But obviously by now, she's already a very accomplished singer, and so she had these... Ideas of going to Hollywood and becoming an actress and all that other stuff. It's this whole thing I found an interview conducted by Journalist Ann Bilson and she sat down with George Miller and she was interviewing him and she asked him kind of about Tina Turner's character she mentions that she read somewhere that George Miller didn't shoot Tina Turner as like a straightforward villainous and that from some angle she was kind of a hero in her own right and So this is a bit of George Miller's response talking about Tina Turner. He mentions that it was very important for them that Auntie be seen as a sort of heroine in her own right they didn't want to fall into a kind of cliched bad guy type of thing because i think when you look back at mad max and road warrior toe cutter and lord humongous they're just kind of larger than life boisterous loud mouths and whatnot and they all have their funny things about them but you know there's not a lot of nuance to them they're just bad so with thunderdome They wanted to show that, you know, today's hero could very easily become tomorrow's villain, which is kind of what happened with Auntie here. And it's this idea that you either die the hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. The idea that you create a world, you create an order, and then you hold so tightly to that order that you've created that anyone that comes in to disrupt that order becomes your enemy.
0: I think in the real world, that's the most common type of enemy that Mm -hmm. we see, especially Mm -hmm. in government.
1: Yeah. So he goes on to say that with Tina Turner, they wanted to have the sense that before she built Barter Town... She was a genuine hero, that you could have a prequel to Beyond Thunderdome starring Auntie Entity, where she is the hero of the film. But now that she's, as Miller says, hold fast, she can't bend. She can't adapt. And so one of the reasons they brought in Tina Turner is that she's perceived as being a fairly positive persona. She's very high energy. She's very charismatic. And so you don't look at Tina Turner and think, oh, that is an awful villainous person, I mean, you look at a character like Dustin Hoffman in Hook, where he's dressed up with the big old menacing Hook, and he's got the hair and the mustache and the look about him. You're like, okay, well, obviously he's the bad guy. There's no way he could be the hero. But you look at Tina Turner in this movie as Auntie, and you're like, okay, I can get behind her. I can see why people would go along with what she's putting down, just because she exudes that, you know, charisma, I think.
0: She is supportable.
1: Absolutely. So that's why they brought Tina in. I'm sure there were other reasons, but that was story-wise yeah. why she was a good fit.
0: And I completely agree with them. I think it was excellent casting.
1: Mm-hmm. So we've seen Mel Gibson's name. We've seen Tina Turner's name. Next up, we get the title of the movie Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And this seems like a good time to talk a little bit about the music that we've been hearing yes. under these titles. It's been quite different. From what we'd heard before. Now, Brian May was the composer for the first Mad Max and the second Mad Max. He's been replaced by a new composer who will see his name. But aside from the composer, we're treated. And I say treated genuinely because the songs that come out of this movie are excellent. Treated to two songs performed by Tina Turner. The first one being the one we're listening to now, One of the Living. Now, granted, it's only the first verse and one instance of the chorus... I mean, the full song is amazing. When it came out in the album for Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, the album version was nearly six minutes long, three times longer to this. If you watch the music video that they showed on like VH1, that's only four minutes long. So there's more to this song than a lot of people usually share. But what's particularly interesting about it is that in 1986, it won the Grammy Award for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance. Really?
0: Did you happen to see who it was up against? Nope. Okay.
1: Did not research that much. Yeah, that's okay. It reached number 15 on the American Billboard Hot 100, though. It was produced by Mike Chapman and written and composed by Holly Knight, who also wrote Turner's singles The Best and Better Be Good to Me. Okay. The music video is...
0: Spectacular? Yes. You'll be posting that, correct?
1: Oh, of course. I am pretty sure that I had it set up to release at a certain time before we ever sat down to record. Okay. I'm pretty sure I was prepping my notes and I found that music video and I set up a link to post on the listener page.
0: Excellent. I would highly recommend everybody out there go to Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone on Facebook, join our group, and watch that video. It's spectacular. Now, did you also post the SNL sketch that was inspired by that music video?
1: I did not. It's more accurate to say that that SNL sketch that you're thinking of was specifically inspired by one element of that music video.
0: Which is an important element of the music video.
1: A guy named Tim Capello. So keep an eye out for him. (laughs) I'm sure that sketch will come up later on when we're talking about saxophones or whatnot. That's true. Tim Capello is... Well, aside from being a multi-instrumentalist and band regular with Tina Turner when she's been touring around and whatnot, yeah, he has some standout roles in the One of the Living music video. I think he also shows up in a lot of her live concert videos. He is the saxophone player from the Lost Boys movie. So he makes an appearance around. He gets around for a very specific reason. All right. (laughs) Moving on, because we've got a lot more names to go through and we are only like 30 some odd seconds into this minute. There are more names to come. Luckily, it'll be a bit quicker going through this second half. Next up, we got Helen Boudet and Frank Thring. (laughs) We will meet Helen Boudet's character sometime in week 16. It's going to be a while before we see her show up. I'm probably not pronouncing her last name correctly because American accent and for our international listeners, I apologize now. I have an American accent. I'm not going to pronounce things right. But as for the actress herself, she was about 22 when this film was shot and it was her first feature length film. She'd done a lot of television work before that, and we'll get more into that when she comes up over the dune like she does. Frank Thring, on the other hand, way more seasoned. By 1984, Beyond Thunderdome was actually one of his latter productions. The next two names are actually really familiar if you've been with us over our hiatus because these are both names that featured prominently. We see Bruce Spence and Robert Grubb, Spence was, of course, the gyro captain in Road Warrior. He comes back here as Jedediah, the pilot. He is a completely separate and distinct character from his role in Road Warrior. They are not the same person.
0: Yeah, I have to admit that I get a little annoyed with people who, not listeners, but, you know, other people who, (laughs) you know, uh, the others, who don't examine the movies the way that we and our listeners do who assume that it's the same character mm-hmm. and i have to admit that it does annoy me because if you're paying attention at all it's clearly not the same person yeah. not connected in any way
1: yeah this is the first movie in the series that we've covered that actually has its own everything wrong with video from the cinema sins guys on youtube and uh we might at some points take a little time to address some of the quote unquote sins that they've attributed to this movie. Yeah, I. I mean, <laughs> I I'd, really
0: wish they would listen to our podcast like because I, like half the sins they mentioned, they're not sins. They're not real. They're right. just not paying attention.
1: Well, I mean, that's the general complaint that everybody has about that channel.
0: Yes, which is their gimmick. That's cool. Yeah, it's very entertaining.
1: It's funny if you're watching it casually, but for s- people like us, when they say that it's a sin that oh, I can't believe that lady from the second one bred with this guy, and I'm like no.
0: Yeah. That's not how
1: it works.
0: (laughs) We are nowhere near casual about this. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Hardly. Oh, yeah. There's a second name on this title card, by the way. (laughs) Robert Grubb, who I mentioned earlier, was one of Mel Gibson's friends in the movie Gallipoli. He was the friend that didn't die, or at least that we didn't see him die. He was, like, severely shell-shocked after an infantry charge. But he survived, I guess. Maybe.
0: I hate to say it, but he probably didn't.
1: Yeah, probably. It was World War One. I. I mean, right?
0: We only saw up to the point of what's his name going over the ridge and dying. There was, oh my gosh, it's been so long since we watched the movie. I can't remember his name. Yeah, that's the, the problem main with character. the that's the problem
1: with the hiatus <laughs> materials. We watched the movie once.
0: The main character, blonde guy. Yeah. Once he dies, the movie's over. There's more in that specific battle. More things happened, and then there were more battles after that. So chances are, his friend. Robert Grubb's character did not survive.
1: But the important thing is, he's back. Yes. A <laughs> couple more names coming up at you. We've got Angelo Rosito and Angry Anderson. Now, the combined height of the men on this title card is eight feet or 2.43 meters for our international listeners. Angelo Rosito was 2 foot 11 inches or 0.88 meters and angry anderson was 5 foot 1 inches or 1.55 meters these guys are uh not tall
0: no (laughs) actually i was really surprised by the age of angelo rosito Mm
1: -hmm. yeah he was in his mid 70s when he filmed this
0: Never would have pegged him. I would have pegged him for maybe 60. Yeah. In this movie.
1: Rosito started acting, like his first film appearance is attributed to 1927, which is remarkable. That he was that early in the advent of film, more or less. Angry Anderson also known as Gary Anderson, is not a veteran actor in the same way that Angela Rosito is. He does, however, add additional rock and roll credibility to Beyond Thunderdome, as he is also an accomplished singer. I showed you his music video for his song, Suddenly. Yes. What did you think of it?
0: It was very 80s. No surprise there. I was surprised by the quality of his voice. Mm -hmm. Totally passable. And the first video that you showed me was a ballad, which I thought he did a really good job on. I think his voice styling suits ballads. Mm -hmm. Now, you also showed me another video. More
1: of an anthem type song. Yeah. Bound for Glory.
0: Yes. Not as good.
1: Well, you could argue that the rock and roll in the 80s, which I think featured a lot of singers with his same vocal style and range, Mm -hmm. not that great, but it all depends on the specific song. When you take 80s rock, you got to take it song by song.
0: Well, yes, I agree. But you compared him to Phil Collins, which I think is a fair (laughs) comparison. Yeah. But Phil Collins can sing it all. He can sing ballads and anthems and rock and roll. He can do it all, and he's great at it.
1: Yeah, I think vocally... Speaking, I think Angry Anderson, and this is the first time I've actually tried to think about 80s hair metal in a long time, so excuse me omitting a lot of valid answers. Kind of reminds me of, I want to say, ah, he kind of reminds me of the band Rat, who sang Round and Round. <laughs> uh, you know, Round and Round, with love, we'll find a way, just give it time. Kind of reminds me of that.
0: All
1: right. <laughs> like I said, not a great answer, because one thing that we are not is we are not music critics. We stick to our lane, and our <laughs> lane is very narrow. <laughs> <So> yeah. <laughs> take that with you, Will. Got a few more names. We see uh, George Spartels and Edwin Hogman. George Spartels plays our resident mechanic. The character name is Blackfinger, and I forget where I heard this story, but... I remember hearing that the term Blackfinger was a nickname for one of the mechanics on either Beyond Thunderdome or one of the prior movies. I can't remember which one, and I pulled up the list of mechanics for those movies including this one, and there are just so many that I could not pinpoint exactly which one they attributed that nickname to. But Blackfinger is a funny little name because in the 2015 video game that they made of Mad Max, one of the side characters, he talks a lot about how he is a Blackfinger. So it's like a generic nickname for a mechanic in this world, which I like.
0: I like it too. It's character building.
1: Yeah. Edwin Hodgman, also known as Ted, To his friends. He plays arguably one of my favorite characters in this movie. He is the combination of Judge, Auctioneer, and Carnival Barker that is just a delight to see on screen. Yes. I love Dr. Dealgood. As George and Edwin's name fades away, we get a title card with three names. And this is like super quick. Less than one second of screen time. So we're not going to worry about these three guys We're going to save them. We've reached the end of this episode. We are going to take a little break, come back next time, pick up where we left off. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for beginning this journey through what is easily the most oddball Mad Max movie of the series.
0: (laughs) I am really excited about this season because it's considered an oddball, goofy movie that I'm really excited to dig into it and find depth in it and extrapolate all sorts of stuff Yeah, about it.
1: It's going to be fun. So come on back next time and we'll keep going. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
0: Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers.
1: Join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link.
0: Thank you for joining us for Minute 1 of Beyond Thunderdome. See you next time!